Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Editor's Note In her final volume, Towards a Philosophy of Education, Charlotte Mason summarized the nature work assigned to children of Form 2. They are expected to do a great deal of -of out-of-door work in which they are assisted by the changing year, admirable month-by-month studies of what is to be seen out-of-doors. They keep records and drawings in a nature notebook and make special studies of their own for the particular season with drawings and notes. Mason's endorsement of the book The Changing Year was reflected in the PNEU programs from at least 1921 and on to 1930. The book was not only recommended for Form 2, but was also mentioned in the programs for Forms 1, 3, and 4. For example, in Form 4 of Program 90, 1921, we read, Keep a nature notebook with flower and bird lists and make daily notes. For out-of-door work, take some special study. The Changing Year by F.M. Haynes or Countryside Rambles by W.S. Furneaux, April to July. Furneaux's A Nature Study Guide. The content of The Changing Year predates the 1921 programs, however. In the preface to the book, author Florence M. Haynes explained... These papers originally appeared in the Parents' Review of 1916 as a series of monthly walks. The team at Charlotte Mason Poetry recently received a scan of the third edition of The Changing Year, which was published in 1924. Given the prominence of this book in the programs and the PNEU literature, we felt it was worth reviving in 2020. We propose to take you on a walk each month with F.M. Haynes and give you the opportunity to reflect on what Miss Mason had in mind when she said to take some special study. Haynes was an ardent naturalist who frequently contributed both articles and letters to the Parents' Review. Interestingly enough, she was also an ardent believer in Froebel's educational system. She was a bit perturbed to read in the August 1908 Parents' Review that the PNEU was inclined to think that the teaching of Pestalozzi and Froebel does not sufficiently recognize the individuality of the children. In a letter to the editor published the following month, Haynes objected, Froebel was, I believe, the first educator who did recognize the individuality of the child, and it is one of the keynotes of the kindergarten system. Fortunately for us, Miss Mason looked beyond this quibble about who was the most progressive educational reformer, and instead focused on Haynes' first love, nature. January may seem like an odd month for us to begin a series about nature study. I might have thought so myself. But then I read Haynes's A Walk in January, and I was reminded how much there is to see and hear this time of year. More than enough, indeed, for a special study. More than enough for a nature notebook, too. A Walk in January, from The Changing Year, by Florence M. Haynes. 
Then came old January, wrapped well in many weeds to keep the cold away. Yet did he quake and quiver like to quell and blow his nails to warm them if he may. For they were numbed with holding all the day and hatchet keen, with which he felled wood, and from the trees did lop the needless spray, upon an huge great earth-pot steen he stood, from whose wide mouth there flowed forth the Roman flood. Spencer Spencer, in the mutability cantos of his fairy queen, represents each month as accompanied by the special implements of husbandry appropriate to the date, and also by its zodiacal sign. January, therefore, stands before us with his hatchet as the man that bears the water pot, or that pours the water out, as another version gives it. The many weeds that enwrap him, the word still survives among us in the expression widow's weeds, are powerless to protect his numb old hands, for cold is the prevailing characteristic of January. Now, even more than at Christmas tide, fiercely flies the blast of north and east, and ice makes daggers at the sharpened eaves. As the day lengthens, the cold strengthens, is a proverb familiar in various forms throughout most of Europe, and similarly a wild January is looked upon as a misfortune. Tusser tells us that a kindly and good Genevere freezeth the pot by the fear. Whereas we know that in January, if the sun appear, March and April pay full dear. Another rhyme has it that if the grass grow in Genevere, twill grow the worse for it all the year. As enwrapped like the month in many weeds, we step out briskly through the keen air. The January landscape appears even more wintry-looking than that of December. The branches plumed with snow, or bleak and bare against a grey or pale blue sky. The streams hushed below their icy coverlets, the icy coverlet that is invaluable in keeping up the temperature of the water below, where the fish move sluggishly, and frogs, newts, and eels are safely ensconced in the mud at the bottom, hibernating till warmer days. Perhaps we surprise a rabbit who has ventured out to nibble a little bark. Hares, too, for Mr. E.K. Robinson says, Sunny days in early January always give an impetus to the love-making of the hares. All of their courtship is comical, but the funniest part is when two of them are sedately browsing a few feet apart, and suddenly the happy thought that spring is coming seems to strike the male, who, without any warning, tosses himself several feet in the air and resumes his feeding. After a few seconds' interval, he does the same thing again and again, until one of those unaccountable impulses to which hares are subject seizes his wife, and off she goes, at a great pace and he follows. After racing a hundred yards or so, they both stop suddenly and continue their meal, which is diversified as before by the husband's intermittent acrobatics. He does not merely jump up as a dog might do, he is shot up as if from a catapult and falls down again like a dead hare, sometimes even alighting on his back. It is an amazing performance, but you may see stolid rabbits do it too. In January, the birds begin to sing again after the silence of autumn and early winter. 
The missile thrush is at his best during a storm of wind and rain when, perched at the top of a tree, he carols joyously for several minutes, stops, and then begins anew. From this habit of singing before and during a storm, the missile thrush is often called the stormcock. The name missile thrush is an allusion to the mistletoe berries, said to form his favorite food. He is the largest of all British thrushes, and during the autumn may be seen in little flocks of ten or twenty. In January, these flocks disperse and the birds mate. The robin redbreast is a winter songster, but indeed the cheery little fellow sings throughout the year, with the exception of his summer molting time. The redbreast, sacred to the household gods, is widely distributed and a universal favorite. His scientific name, Eritaka, comes through the Latin from a confusion with the Greek eruthros, red. Various are the legends accounting for that red breast. One of these describes how, as our Savior hung on the cross on Calvary, the bird worked with all its feeble strength to pull the thorns from his brow, piercing its soft breast and staining it with blood. Blessed be thou, said the Lord, thou sharer in my sufferings. Wherever thou goest, happiness and joy shall follow thee. Blue as the heavens shall be thy eggs, and from henceforth thou shalt be the bird of God, the bearer of good tidings. Note, the eggs of the robin are whitish in colour, marked with browny red, but those of the American robin redbreast, a species of thrush, are blue. See Longfellow's Caramos. The blue eggs in the robin's nest will soon have wings and beak and breast and flutter and fly away. A Welsh tradition gives a different origin. The breast is scorched by fire as the little robin carries water drop by drop to the souls in purgatory. He brings cool dew in his little bill and lets it fall on the souls of sin. You can see the marks on his red breast still of fires that scorch as he drops it in. There is an old belief that the robin redbreast, if he find a man or woman dead, will cover his or her face with moss. And some think that if the body should remain unburied, he will cover the whole body. Every child who has heard the story of the babes in the wood knows that robin redbreast piously did cover them with leaves. And Shakespeare alludes to this belief in Cymbeline. I'll sweeten thy sad grave. Thou shalt not lack the flower that's like thy face, pale primrose, nor the azured harebell, like thy veins. No, nor the leaf of eglantine, whom not to slander outsweetened not thy breath. The ruddock wood, with charitable bill, O oh, bill, sore shaming those rich left heirs that let their fathers lie without a monument, bring thee all this, Yea, and furred moss besides, when flowers are none, to winter ground thy corpse. From Cymbeline, Act 4, Scene 2. Drayton and Webster also refer to this, the latter associating the wren in the act of mercy, and we know that the robin redbreast and the wren are God Almighty's cock and hen. The wren is the only member of its family in Europe. It is a very shy little bird with small powers of flight, but its voice, in spite of its size, is clear and powerful. It, too, is a winter singer. Like the robins, wrens retain their original haunts, 
and so much is this the case that Hudson says, There is a proper Cornish wren, even as there is a St. Kilda wren, and as there is a native wren, or local race of wrens in every county, in every village and farmhouse and wood and coppice and hedgerow in the United Kingdom. He is a home-keeping little bird, and when you find him, summer or winter, in town or country, you know that he is native, that his family is a very old one in that part, and was probably settled there before the advent of blue-eyed man and the dawn of a Bronze Age. How the wren became the king of birds is told in Grimm's popular tales. In this connection, we note that the cruel sport of hunting the wren was practiced at various dates in different localities. In the south of Ireland, Christmas or St. Stephen's Day was the time selected, but the origin of the curious custom is unknown. Timms, in his Something for Everybody, says in regard to this, Its origin is thus traced by Aubrey in his miscellanies. The last battle fought in the north of Ireland between the Protestants and the Papists was in Glinsley, near Letterkenny, in the county of Donegal. Near the same place, a party of the Protestants had been surprised sleeping by the Popish Irish, were it not for several wrens that just wakened them by dancing and pecking on the drums as the enemy were approaching. For this reason, the wild Irish mortally hate these birds to this day, calling them the devil's servants, and killing them wherever they catch them. They teach their children to thrust them full of thorns. You will see sometimes on holidays a whole parish running like madmen from hedge to hedge, a wren hunting. By some authorities, the antipathy of the Irish to the wren is connected with the invasion of the Danes. Another explanation is that by the Druids it was esteemed to be the king of birds, and it was the favourite bird of the augurs of old. The superstitious respect thus paid to it gave offence, it is said, to our first Christian missionaries, and by their command the wren is still hunted and killed by the peasants on Christmas Day. And on the following, St. Stephen's Day, he is carried about, hung by the leg in the centre of two hoops crossing each other at right angles, and a procession is made in every village of men, women, and children, singing an Irish catch, importing him to be the king of all birds. From Colonel Valency's Collectania de Rebus Ibernicus Tim's gives a song beginning, The Wren, the Wren, the king of all birds, St. Stephen's Day, he was caught in the furs. But the origin suggested by the last explanation does not seem very probable. The hedge sparrow, greater titmouse, thrush, chaffinch, and blackbird may now be heard. Rooks return to their nests and flocks of larks, linnets, and buntings may be seen. The nuthatch will approach our houses in search of food. He earned his name by his habit of fixing nuts in the crevices of trees, then hammering with his beak, each blow delivered from the hip with full force, till the shell is broken. When nuts are unattainable, he feeds on insects and seeds, and in pursuit of the former he will run about the bark of trees, poking into crevices and tearing off large pieces, and whereas the woodpecker, whose note may be heard this month, always ascends a tree spirally, the nuthatch runs freely in all directions with a mouse-like movement. Other names for this bird are nutbreaker, nuthacker, nuttapper, nutpecker, and nutjobber.
In sheltered nooks under hedgerows, young leaves are sprouting, and insects swarming. Gnats, especially, dance gaily whenever the weather is even moderately mild. Spite of frosty nights, January has a goodly list of blossoms. The red and the white dead nettle, groundsel, common firs, butterbur, chickweed and snowdrop, bearsfoot and the fetid hellebore, barren strawberry, shepherd's purse, perhaps the field speedwell or a stray dandelion, daisy or primrose, the latter especially in the valleys of Devon and Cornwall, while in the garden we have the Christmas rose, the winter aconite, the curiously scented miserion, the yellow jasmine, and perhaps a wallflower, stalk, or polyanthus. The little red dead nettle is the first of the year's flowers, outdistancing the snowdrop by a week or more. The leaves of both red and white closely resemble those of the common stinging nettle, hence the name, but they are easily distinguished by their flowers, as also by the fact that the dead nettles have square stems. The plants belong to totally different orders, the stinging nettle being a member of the urticaceae, having its green blossoms in long clusters and allied to the elm and hop, whereas the dead nettles belong to the great labiate order and are related to the various mints, woundworts, germanders, bugle, etc. The labiates are readily recognized by their flowers, which are usually divided into two lips, of which the lower lip is larger and three-lobed, the upper less distinctly two-lobed. They are a truly model family, for while no single member is injurious, many are most valuable on account of their volatile oil. Menthol and patchouli are extracted from various species, and lavender, peppermint, pennyroyal, and rosemary are well known in pharmacy. The Reverend C.A. Johns, in his Flowers of the Field, tells us that the last, rosemary, is one of the plants used in the preparation of eau de cologne and Hungary water, and the admired flavor of Narbonne honey is ascribed to the bees feeding on the flowers of this plant, as that of the honey of Hymatus is indebted for its flavor to wild thyme, also a member of the Labiate. Like Robin Redbreast, the common groundsel is a year-long friend, for there is not a month in which we cannot find its little yellow blossoms. Both these and the leaves are a favorite food of small birds, and in former times the groundsel was in great repute in medicine for poulticing. The name of the genus is from the Latin senex, an old man, in allusion to the hairy white pappus. The curious butterbur with its club-like head of flowers belongs to the same genus as the winter heliotrope of our shrubberies, and like it is a most persistent weed, ousting all other plants in its vicinity. The flowers appear some time in advance of the broad leaves, one to four feet in diameter, which have given the genus its botanical name, Greek petasos, a sunshade, and also its English title, butterbur or butterdock the foliage being employed in packing butter. Its similarity in leaf to another dock, the burdock, is very strong, and in summer it is often mistaken for that plant. The little chickweed, like the groundsel, is a favorite food of small birds, hence its name. There are three British species, of which the common chickweed is much the most abundant, flourishing by every wayside. Of this plant it has been said that it has followed the Briton all over the world. The other species are the great chickweed, which grows in moist ground. It flowers in summer, and perennial chickweed. 
The beautiful little snowdrop cannot, strictly speaking, be counted among wildflowers, though it may be found in woods in the west of England. It seems to have been originally imported from the continent by the various religious orders who cultivated it in the Abbey Garden and employed its snowy blossoms in the service for the purification of the Blessed Virgin, February 2nd. An old legend tells us that the first snowdrops sprang up to comfort Eve after she had forfeited paradise. As she sat weeping amid the thick snow, an angel approached and with consoling words caught and breathed upon a falling flake, which fell to earth as a flower. This bud, Eve, said he, is an earnest that summer is not dead. And when the angelic visitor returned to heaven, lo, where last his wings have swept the snow, a quaintly fashioned ring of milk-white snowdrops blow. And indeed the snowdrop, with its message of divine love and purity, has comforted and strengthened many sorrowful hearts since that day. The French call the snowdrop Persneige, snowpiercer, and the Germans Schneeglückchen, little snowbell. The Spaniards know it as Campanuja Blanca, and the Welsh as Clockmabin, baby bell. Our next flowers, the green hellebore, or bear's foot, and fetid hellebore, are sometimes found in thickets on chalky soil, usually near houses, but cannot be considered indigenous. The fetid or stinking hellebore may be distinguished from the green by the purple tips of its sepals. Another name for this plant is setterwort. The shepherd's purse is readily distinguished by the heart-shaped seed vessels, which give it both its Latin and English name. It belongs to the crucifere or cabbage family, as do the wallflower, stalk, and various cresses. The flowers of this order are easily recognized by the four petals, placed crosswise. There are at least 1,200 different species of crucifere, the greater number natives of the temperate zones, though arctic vegetation is largely composed of them. None are poisonous, and the rich nitrogen and sulfur they contain render them invaluable as food and medicine. The cultivated turnips, radish, and sea kale are members of the same family as the humble little shepherd's purse by the roadside. The barren strawberry, or strawberry-leaved sinkfoil, may be distinguished from the wood strawberry, which flowers later, by the hairiness of the undersurface of its leaves, and by its notched petals, those of the wood strawberry being entire. Both plants belong to the rosaceae, but are of different genera. It is still early for catkins, but we cannot fail to notice the yellow lamb's tails of the hazel, which, stiff and green throughout the last few months, are now flexible and ripe, shaking their powdery dust over our fingers as we gather a spray. The hazel is fertilized by wind, not insects, and therefore, like all wind-fertilized trees, must produce a considerable quantity of pollen to allow for wastage. The small, seed-bearing flowers are less conspicuous, but beautiful with their little crimson stigmas. They appear rather later than the catkins, but both may be found before the end of the month. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.